If you have a Bible, please could you open it to the book of Ruth? And we're going to be in the last chapter of Ruth and the last words of that book. So Ruth chapter 4, and we're going to pick it up from verse 13. Uh, Ruth is the eighth book in the Bible. The longer books in front of it are Joshua and Judges. And then you come to Ruth, just a couple of pages long, um, a a short, detailed narrative around the lives of uh, three or four people and um, the events that took place there about 3,000 years ago. Now, as we're coming to the very end of this series, I just want to remind you of the contours of the story. Um, It is the story of two women in particular, Naomi, the mother-in-law, and Ruth, the daughter-in-law, who are left heartbroken and bereft and dejected, having lost um, both husbands. So um, three men in the family die, and there are two daughters-in-law left, and one of them stays in a place called Moab. But Naomi and Ruth journey back from Moab to Bethlehem where Naomi is from, a Hebrew village. And uh, there they begin to experience the healing work of God in their lives through the kindness of a man named Boaz, who takes them, as it were, under, their wing, under his wings in terms of provision, making sure that they have enough food on the table. And then, as events unfold, there is a romance that plays out between Ruth and Boaz, and they end up being married. And in all this, we see something of the wonderful work of God in his kindness to these women, providing for them, bringing them into this position of uh, stability and security uh, from a place of need, and ultimately also paving the way for the coming of Christ, um, given that they are ancestors to Christ a thousand years hence um, or previous. Now, I want to read to you the last words then of this small but uh, actually incredibly significant book, and it just tells us this. Chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. I want to... Consider this book in the round as we bring this to a conclusion this evening. And particularly look at the way in which God um, has been at work in and through the reality of their pain and suffering and disappointment and dejection as women. And particularly what that teaches us. But we have to acknowledge at the outset that whenever we encounter um, difficult situations in life, situations we wouldn't choose for ourselves or we observe them in the lives of others, Our instinctive reaction is to want to bring comfort, isn't it? And the way in which we do this, I'm speaking in terms of our cultural response and societal response, is we we often run to certain stock phrases and aphorisms as ways of comforting one another without really necessarily believing them or giving much thought to what it is that we're saying. So we might say things that everything will work out in the end, and of course, Everything does ultimately come to a conclusion, but it's quite a meaningless and empty phrase in and of itself. We 
We don't know how things will work out. That's the point. Or we might say that behind every cloud is a silver lining. You've heard these things, right? And um, it's a way of comforting ourselves that surely something good will come out of this. Surely there has to be some good. Or we say that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Quoting the great philosopher Kelly Clarkson, who uh, <laughs> prior to that was quoting Friedrich Nietzsche, I believe. And, um, or, and probably the most trotted out phrase is that everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. I've heard this one so many times in my life, and it's just it's something that people just say so easily. And I want us to just dwell on that for a second as we open this, because as much as that can be said in an empty way, I think it also has a seed of truth in it. And I know on the one hand, we recognize that typically when people say everything happens for a reason, it's very often said on the lips of someone who doesn't necessarily believe in a personal God who has a plan or intention behind all things. And therefore, it begs the question, what reason and who's coming up with this reason? And the answer is, well, the universe, presumably. And of course, that to me is a very dissatisfying way of comforting one another in suffering. If we really believe in a purposeless, godless universe, and let's just call it what it is and not offer each other empty platitudes. Of course, it's also said by people, those very annoying people who are just intolerably optimistic in all situations. And of course, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything's going to turn out for the best. But on the other hand, I think it's important that you and I, if we are followers of Jesus and believers in a personal God, we believe in a God who is sovereign over all things. And so to say something like that everything happens for a reason does not have to be an empty phrase. It can be an expression of, of reality and of truth. And it's not to say that we necessarily can claim to know the reasons. We may have some small insight into what God is doing in and through the pains and experiences that we go through in life. But very often we cannot discern a specific reason or the mind of God in any given situation or circumstance. We comfort ourselves that he has a plan, even if it's not fully revealed to us. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we think that everything will ultimately turn out as we would choose it to turn out, and that they'll improve in some vague way. But what we do believe, and what is crucial to believe, is that we understand that there is a sovereign, wise, and loving God at work behind all things. And it seems to me that part of the reason a book like this is written is for our benefit in understanding the hand of a wise and loving God as he is at work behind the scenes, even in the pain and suffering that these women endure. Now, I want to stress this at the outset because I think that there are a few things that are more important for us to understand and believe if we are to have a mature Christian walk. You will face all kinds of suffering in your life, from low-grade chronic frustration, disappointment, dismay, all the way through to catastrophes and, and heartbreaking traumatic experiences such as the death of a loved one and everything in between. You live long enough, you'll accumulate more of these experiences. And whenever you go through something that you would not choose to face, something that brings you heartache or even excruciating pain or, or brings about some kind of depression, whenever you face such circumstances, the 
unsaid or said question will always be whether God is good and whether you can trust him. I know that in opening up this book and looking at the beauties of romantic love in this story, that that has aggravated for some of you an ongoing source of disappointment in life that you've not yet found someone to love or be loved by. For others of you, there are chronic issues of depression or anxiety that at times feel overwhelming. You may go through or have been through dark seasons and setbacks, death or sickness with those you love and are near to you. And at any given moment, as I look out across a congregation like ours, I know that there are people going through heartache and difficulty. And this is the question that's coming up all the time, even if you don't fully formulate it in your mind. It's there under the surface. Is, is God good and can I trust in him? And how you answer that is so determinative of your future. Whenever we face suffering of any kind in life, there is, as it were, a wide junction in the road because it can drive us away from the Lord and into consolation outside of him, by which I mean illegitimate sources of pleasure and delight to solve our misery, or it can drive us deeper into God. And the more conscious you are of the dynamics that are going on in your own spirit when you face such things, the more chance there is that you will face them well. Now, how are we to do that? How are we to be prepared for such things or face them if you're in them right now? I think part of it has to be addressed at the head level. It has to begin there. The Christian faith is a faith that primarily we, we access through our understanding of truth. It comes to us in the mind. And therefore, we read a verse like this in Romans 8 that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That is a verse that has sustained so many people through dark seasons of life, knowing and trusting with the mind that God is good and that he is working the situation for good, even if I cannot yet perceive what that good is. It has to begin there, but I know that's not enough. To really believe something, it has to sink from your mind down into your heart and your soul, doesn't it? It has to be something that you truly believe with your gut. And I think one of the reasons why stories like this are given to us is we have had the privilege of a window into the suffering of these women whose story has been recorded for us. One of the reasons a story like this has been written and what I want us to reflect upon is that we might see through the lens of narrative the goodness of God in a way that we'll be able to recall and recapture for our minds and hearts as and when we face challenges in life. I will say that whenever I've been through dark seasons, it has partly been the knowledge of the truth that has sustained me, but it's also been the example of others. To be able to call to mind the resolve and the faith and the trust and the work of God in other people's lives can give you what you need for today. And so when we read a story like this and we're coming to the, the very end of this book, it's like we're looking down upon their story like we could look down upon a maze. Imagine you were in one of those great country houses standing on a balcony. And in the garden, as was the fashion, there may be one of these mazes with tall hedges. 
And Naomi and Ruth, as it were, are wandering through the hedges of this maze. They can't see around the bend. They can't see to their left or to their right. They do not have any great perception in the moment of their direction or orientation or what, how the story will end for them. But you as the reader, you stand outside and above the narrative. And you can stand there, as it were, alongside the God who is at work in their story, understanding it from his perspective and knowing that all things work together for good in the end, that he was bringing about his purposes in and through them. And that has a power that can stick with you so that when you're in the maze and you feel like you're surrounded by confusion and shadow and doubt, your heart can be sustained. What does God accomplish in our pain? I think that there are abiding lessons that come through this whole book that are true as universal truths for us when we face sufferings of all kinds, and I want to show you what I think they are. The first is this, that I believe we can trust that God is at work through suffering of all kinds to bring about our spiritual growth and transformation and maturity. And I say that because I, I see that pattern working out in the lives of both Naomi and Ruth in this book. When we first meet them, they are not in the same place spiritually that they are at the end of the book. Consider them in turn. Think about Naomi, the mother-in-law, the Hebrew older woman. She and her husband had left Bethlehem and left the place alongside the people of God to go and live among a foreign people, which was not done by the Israelites, and was an expression of turning their back in the sense upon God and not trusting God to provide for them to go and find wealth elsewhere. And their life had been trundling on well there. They'd married their, their sons off to foreign women, again, which was not done and which went against the law, specifically in marrying Moabite women. And so, in a sense, you can read between the lines and know that Naomi was not in a good place spiritually. She was away from God and away from the people of God until this great tragedy befalls her. And then there is a change of direction. She goes back from Moab and finds refuge among God's people again in Bethlehem and refuge among worshippers. When we meet Boaz, for example, in chapter 2, we meet a devout and godly man who greets the workers in his field by blessing them in the name of the living God, and they bless him in return. And now at the end of this narrative, as we've read about the birth of this grandchild to Naomi, the villagers gather round, and the first thing they do, the instinctive thing they do, is they give praise to God. They say, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Naomi has come home, in other words, from being out in the cold and away from God's people to being back among God's people in the right place that she should have been all along. And there's been a transformation of soul that we've seen as well in the four chapters of this book. You remember in the first chapter how she describes her situation, spiritual condition as being in bitterness. She's screwed up and angry inside, frustrated with her lot. And now by the end of this narrative, we encounter her with a grandchild who they say is a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. There's a life come to her soul again. You see her going from a position of emptiness as well. She says, I went out full and I've come back empty. You see her going from emptiness to fullness. 
when God gives her the blessing of a son-in-law and now this grandson to fill her heart with delight. There's been a radical change in Naomi's life, and that change, think, when did that change begin? It began when tragedy struck. Now, something similar is going on in the life of Ruth also. Ruth is not a believer in the living God. She's a foreign woman who is a Moabite who worshipped other gods, idols, as the Israelites would have described them. And yet, again, there is a radical change of direction in Ruth's life when tragedy falls because then they have to make a decision. The three women who are gathered together decide, are they going to stay in Moab or move back? Naomi says, I'm moving back to Bethlehem. One of the daughters, Orpah, decides to stay in Moab. But Ruth makes this life-changing decision when she commits herself to Naomi and says, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. In other words, she has a conversion experience in committing not only to be friends with Naomi for life, but also to worship the same God that Naomi worships and to come and identify herself with the people of God. And Ruth would never have gone through that extraordinary transformation of mind and heart had tragedy not fallen upon her. And now at the end of this book, Ruth emerges as something like a spiritual giant. When the villagers are reflecting on the blessings that Naomi has experienced, they say to her that God has given her a daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. Now what they are saying there is they're calling to, to, to mind the Hebrew vision of the perfect family. Seven boys, seven strapping lads. And they're saying, this Moabite woman is worth more than seven sons, which is, among a spiritual people, a spiritual assessment. They're saying that she is extraordinary. And you cannot miss the fact, therefore, that all this good that is actually accomplished inside of these two women begins to take place because of the sadness that they face. It brings about a change of direction. It's so often the case, isn't it, in our lives, that we can be trundling along happily, going about our merry business, until something intervenes and something goes wrong. And I think this speaks partly to those of you who you would understand yourself to be backslidden, a description of someone who has walked with or run with Christ for a season, but is no longer walking with or running with Jesus. Maybe you've grown weary and stumbled and fallen off the path, or you've deviated to one side or the other, or you've just stopped altogether. And your position is a little bit like Naomi's. And you ask, well, how might God intervene in your life? How might he be intervening even now? And the answer of Scripture, I think there are a number of things that we could say to that. But one thing that, that is apparent is that God will often use tragedy and pain to bring about a change of direction in our lives. It's there, isn't it, in the story that Jesus said, told of the prodigal son who takes his inheritance and runs off and spends it on prostitutes and parties until he runs out of money. And then we're told that when he'd spent everything, a famine arose 
And he ends up feeding pigs and eating the food that the pigs are eating because he's so famished. And all of this continues until one day, it says, when he came to himself. That boy could not have grown wise if he had not suffered. And God uses the suffering in his life to change his direction, that having been in rebellion against his father and by extension against God, the suffering and pain of his experience radically changes his direction so that he turns around physically and walks back home to his father and to his family. If you are going through some experience that you cannot deal with, be aware, friend, that God may well be chasing you down. And if it's true for someone who is in a backslidden state, it may also be true for you if you have never believed in Jesus at all. I think that for many people who turn from no belief to belief, the thing which catalyzes or triggers a desire to, to find spiritual reality and truth is very often the experience of some kind of suffering. That may be an internal torment. A mind and an outlook that you cannot seem to remedy. It may be circumstances that you face, but whatever happens in your life, understand this, that it's easy, isn't it, to maintain self-sufficiency and autonomy in life for as long as things are going well. But as soon as something bad happens to you, everything is exposed. It's like the foundations are put to the test. It's like an earthquake is taking place in your life and suddenly you discover the structural integrity of the life that you've built. And whether it's built on anything or whether it's just built on shifting sand. And it is only pain and suffering that can really expose that. I think to an extent we've seen that at a level of society, haven't we, in recent years, that for so many decades we have seen nothing but relentless prosperity and growth. And now we are encountering um, bleak situations, having gone through the pandemic and now facing an economic turmoil and warfare on not far away. You see, all these things raise up the questions of what our lives are built upon and whether it is truly solid. And if that's true at the societal level, friend, that is true also at the personal level. If you are experiencing something like that, then God is on your case. What are God's purposes in pain? Well, one of them is to bring about deep spiritual transformation. Another way we could look at this that comes through and is apparent from this book is that God may use our experiences of pain and suffering to awaken our minds and heart to a fresh understanding, revelation, and appreciation of the redeeming love of God, His love. Now, in order to understand this, I just want to take a step back and recognize and acknowledge a human, universal human tendency, which is that we have to acknowledge that there is a law of the human nature, which is that we all tend to begin to take for granted and ignore the good things in our lives once we become accustomed to them. It's true, isn't it, in the song, Big Yellow Taxi, it says, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They've paved paradise and put up a parking lot. Do wop, do wop, wop. <laughs> it's a classic. And it's true in life, isn't it, that when 
It's not until something is taken away that then you begin to realize what you had all along. It's true of just basic, basic utilities. You know, if your water was cut off for a day, you know, this happens from time to time, doesn't it? Someone says, I've got a plumbing issue. There's no water. It's like disaster. It's like the world's come to an end. Can I come to your house and shower? This is awful. Or the gas isn't working or the electricity isn't working. There's a power cut. Or the worst of all, the Wi-Fi stops working. Any of these things happen. Suddenly, you, you become alert to that which you were taking for granted all along. And if that, that's true for us, you think, you know, we've been shocked, haven't we, to to view on our screens the, the terrible trials that, are going, that the ordinary people are going through right now when they are in these besieged situations in which the basic amenities of life are no longer guaranteed. And it's human nature, isn't it, for us to take these things for granted as though they were just, were just, they're just normal. And it's true of every good thing that you enjoy in life, your health. I almost never think about my health until something goes wrong. And then I'm suddenly very aware. You think about, it's true of friendships and relationships, isn't it? How easily we can take for granted the preciousness of friendships until someone's moving away or disappeared from our life. And then you're racked with frustration and regret. Why didn't I spend more time with them? Why didn't I appreciate them while I could? It just seems to me to be an almost unescapable law of human nature that we become numbed to the good things around us. And friend, this is a more important diagnostic than you may realize. Because the Bible actually traces the root of our spiritual sickness as humans down to this dynamic. And particularly as it relates to our ability to know and appreciate the love of God. You see, the Bible tells us that we are always surrounded by his love. So Matthew 5, for example, Jesus says that God, who is a father in heaven, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So that whenever you feel the warmth of the sun on your face or the trickle of rain, that causes the crops to grow, you are experiencing the love of God that is not deserved. We don't have to live on a planet so beautiful and extraordinary as this one. It's put similarly in Acts 17 when Paul's speaking to the Athenians there, and he quotes back their prophets and, and affirms what they're saying when he says it's actually not good, that God isn't far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, which is to say that every breath that you pull into your lungs is a gift from God. Every moment that your heart continues to tick and your cells metabolize is a gift from the living God. And this is true whether you believe in him or not. Life cannot be taken for granted. Your life was never guaranteed. It's contingent upon the love of a heavenly father who allows you to keep on breathing. And every good thing that you enjoy in your life is a gift of his love and of his grace. Your health, your strength, the joy, the food, the drink, the job, the relationships, the home, the warmth, everything. And yet we fail to say thank you. And the book of Romans says that this is actually the 
fundamental diagnosis of why there is spiritual sickness among humans. As Romans 1, Paul traces through the descent as people turn their backs upon God and then descend into all kinds of mess and idolatry. And the way he describes that, the fulcrum or the pivotal point at which everything begins to go wrong is described in this way. He says that what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made. So he's saying... All of creation preaches to you the goodness, majesty, and power of the living God. But then he says this. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. All unbelief, all coldness of heart towards God always stems back to an inability to say thank you. How can God awaken us to his love again? When our hearts grow dull. And the answer is that often he will strip away those comforts that we had taken for granted. He may remove that situation of health or those relationships or the wealth that you have enjoyed or your peace of mind and of spirit. And in taking that away from you, and I could substantiate this from so many stories in Scripture, in taking that away, in allowing you to experience the removal of day-to-day comfort and ease, suddenly you feel exposed. Suddenly you see your need. And then we can begin to seek again the kindness and the love of God and to appreciate afresh his bounty and generosity to us. Sometimes we have to experience something we wouldn't choose in order to awaken. A couple of years ago, my, my oldest daughter is, uh, my youngest one is the one making all the noise this evening. My oldest daughter is a, um, is, uh, She's a lot like me in the sense that she's quite absent-minded. She likes to daydream. Um, you could speak to her and she wouldn't notice at all. And uh, often we have to repeat again and again in order to get through to her. And a couple of years ago, we were on holiday and we were walking through a bustling French market. And granted, I was a little distracted by all the amazing food. I was like, oh, j'adore la baguette and all this kind of thing. You know, there was honey on display and all this stuff. And I was, oh, French food is, is extraordinary, isn't it? It's a gift from the Lord. It's a bounty of his grace. Anyway, so I was distracted by the food, and we're saying to, to, the, to our, our daughter, please, please stay with us. And often we had to, we had to keep telling her again and again, don't, don't wander off, stay with us. You know, look, and sure enough, she vanished. And panic began to set in. Sienna and I were, were, were just frantically walking around the market trying to, to spot our little girl. Until phew, we see a French family uh, kneeling down, taking care of her, looking worried and anxious as well. And we wander over and they're like, is this your daughter? And we're like, yes, she's our daughter. Because you have to answer in, in the accent at least, just to show you're trying. And uh, she was restored to us. And I tell you, for the duration of that, for, for weeks, maybe even months after that, 
That girl, she clung to us whenever we were out in public. Like she was ensuring she would not get lost again. And suddenly what she'd taken for granted before, which was the presence of her parents, suddenly became something precious to her because she understood that we provide that protection and safety that she so needed. And it seems to me that that's how God may deal with us at times. He let us stray outside of safety or of grace or experience pains we wouldn't choose in order to alert us to our desperate need for our Father and His presence in our lives. And then when we are returning to Him, His love His love, his love is the thing that you most appreciate and cherish. This was true for Naomi and Ruth. They encounter God in a love story. When Boaz, who is a type of Christ, steps in as a redeemer to show them God's love. And through Boaz, they experience the love of the God who made them and cares for them. And so it will be with you and I. That God may alert you to fresh experiences of his love, even in and through your pain. And I can attest to this. I think there are aspects of the love and kindness of God that I have only learned through the very difficult situations that I have passed through at times. Facets of his mercy and kindness. Ways in which the love of God has been expressed and felt expressed to me and felt by me through God's people as well, so that I, I felt more love than ever, even as I'd gone through situations I would not choose to face. And Ruth and Naomi emerge at the other end of this book, bathing in the love of God. Let me show you one last thing. God may bring about spiritual renewal, I've said, and also a fresh understanding of his love. One other thing I think we can say here, a purpose of God in and through pain, is that God can bring a life out of death. And God uses suffering to allow life to emerge out of a situation of death. Now, this is clearly a summary of the book as a whole. That it begins in death. The first verses of the book, the first paragraph of the book is a death after death. The husband and the, man, the two boys dying. And it ends with life. It ends with the story of a baby boy being born and then the lineage of life as it traces through the genealogy from Perez all the way through to David. So that the point could not be more obvious to us that what has begun in death has now given birth to life. And this is true also, most importantly, in the baby himself, I think, who's described by the villagers to Naomi as a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. We've seen this in a very profound way in our own family. Over the last years, we saw my, my dad entering his final months and, and, and dying. There was the almost paradoxical way in which the children would bring life into the home so that we saw a direct way in which God was communicating love and grace to us through the life of these young ones. And so often life must follow death. And he's also, for Naomi, this boy, 
because of the technicalities of the way this marriage has functioned, as I explained to you, it was a marriage of redemption, a leverate marriage. The boy that is born to Ruth is, in a sense, a replacement of Naomi's lost son, Marlon. So that as the villagers recognize, they say a son has been born to Naomi. This grandmother can now claim him as a very own boy. Death gives way to life. And this brings us to what is a, a spiritual law in Scripture. It's expressed by Jesus in, actually in a few places, but I'm thinking particularly of, of the book of John and chapter 12, where Christ says that truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It bears much fruit. What he's describing here is a kind of, he's using an image of nature to explain a spiritual reality that death must precede life. And we see this in nature all around us. You see it in the way that winter must precede spring and the burgeoning of life that follows death. And you see it in, in aspects of nature everywhere. How in the, in the Californian uh, forests where there are, there are raging uh, fires, you know the redwoods actually need the fires in order to be stronger and grow taller. Redwoods are very resistant to fire. They have thick bark that, that ca- cannot easily be burned because it's got so many tannins and chemicals in the structure of the bark that's resistant to fire. And the more fires there are, these redwoods can grow bigger and taller and stronger as the forest is cleared of competitors. So that some of these trees have faced countless fires over thousands of years. They're literally four, five, six thousand years, some of these trees in age. And the fire helped them to grow. Death precedes life. It's true in South Africa in the Feinbos where the fires spread um, every few years and ravage the countryside. But so many of the plants there in the Feinbos have to be burned in order to propagate and, and propel their seeds into the surrounding soil. And therefore, new life emerges. And if there is no fire, the, the plants eventually do not reproduce. Death must precede life. And Jesus is pointing to this reality within nature. A seed must fall into the ground and die, be buried, and then it can bear fruit. It can have life. And the reason why he does this is, is to, to demonstrate to us, first and foremost, what he had to accomplish by his death upon the cross. Just before he said that line, he said that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's first and foremost to underline for us the spiritual principle that's written into the gospel, the story of our salvation itself. It's right there at the beating heart. One had to die in order to bring about life. He had to die in your place, friend. And you can only live if you live in the good of that death. But then it becomes a pattern for the Christian life itself. Because he immediately goes on to say that whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The only way that you can experience life as a Christian is by passing through death. The death immediately that he's thinking of is of the death of conversion, which so often in Scripture is depicted to us as a form of death. 
Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You cannot be a follower of Jesus unless you die. There is no one who has committed their life to being a disciple of Jesus who hasn't made some decision. I have to die so that he can live in me. And there's no way in that you can just take hold of a piece of Christ or an appendage or take part of the, the Christian gospel and just attach it to your life and try and keep hold of your life. Jesus says if you do, try and do that, you die. It doesn't work. You have to die in order to then receive the life that is his. And if it's true at the beginning of the Christian life, this pattern of death preceding life is also the means by which Christians mature into godliness. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, if you are finding yourself in a situation in which your spiritual life is withering and you cannot understand why you don't have any vitality in your relationship with God, friend, I can diagnose it for you in a second. It's because you have not put the flesh to death. There is something in your life that you will not repent of and turn away from. If you live according to the flesh, Paul says, you'll die. If you try and feed what is displeasing to God, your spiritual life cannot flourish. And the reverse is also true. If you want to see revival and renewal and fresh growth in your life, there is something that's necessary you have to die, friend. What I'm trying to help you to see is that this is such a universal pattern and principle in the Bible that death precedes life and that God brings life out of death and that we can see it in the book of Ruth as a whole. And therefore, this truth can be of profound significance for us when we suffer. Because you have to see this, that in all suffering, a death is taking place. If you're going through sickness, you must die to self-sufficiency and the sense of immortality of the body. If you're going through an experience of your great weakness, your pride is being killed day after day. If you're experiencing delay and frustration, things that you want in life that aren't coming your way, you understand, right, that entitlement is dying in you. All suffering is an opportunity for death to take place in us. And that death will give way to life. And so there is always hope latent in our pain. There's always hope latent in pain. Because through the death that we experience in pain and suffering, God brings about new life. And I want to show you as I bring this to a close, the two most extraordinary ways in which God brings life out of death in this short book. The first is this, that God establishes through the midst of this tragedy, he establishes the ancestral line of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Here it is traced, isn't it, for us, that Ruth, having been married to Marlon in Moab, Marlon dies, she moves to Bethlehem, she marries Boaz, and the extraordinary way in which God, in and through that death, brings about life because Boaz and Ruth have their son Obed. Obed fathers Jesse. Jesse fathers David. And 900 years later, 
the Lord Jesus Christ is born. So that over the course of a thousand years, God in his sovereign wisdom was bringing about the entry of life into this world in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, even in this seemingly insignificant story, what could just be disparaging, described as a soap opera of these, these women's lives. It boggles my mind. So that if Holly was, was producing a sequence of stories about the great hero who is Jesus Christ, there would inevitably have to come a moment at which they do an origin story, a thousand years previous, in which they tell the story of his ancestry here. Life coming from death. And there's one more way in which I see this coming through, this life after death and the wisdom of God. It's in the way that God lays the groundwork in these, these, these lives, these stories, in this narrative, he lays the groundwork for worldwide revival. The ultimate expression of life as, as the life of Christ is spread to the world through the gospel and the, the explosion expansion of the church. Something of that is latent here in this story. And let me explain to you why. Ask with me the question, what is the greatest obstacle to the spread of the gospel and the progress of the gospel in the New Testament era? And we could offer many contenders. Remember, Jesus charged his disciples, his apostles, with the mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth so that the life of Christ could be transmitted to everyone everywhere so that the whole world could come to know the Father through him. That's the mission of the church that continues on to this day. And it all begins with a small band of people gathering in a room after Jesus' ascension, praying together. And ask with me the question, what is the greatest obstacle to the progress of the gospel at that point that means that it could have stopped there in Jerusalem? And there are a number of things you could say. You could say, well, the fear, because they faced persecution. And I might agree with you that fear was a problem, except that the Holy Spirit moved in and gave them boldness and courage that they, they preached in the face of persecution and even of death. Or you might say to me, their low social status and lack of education, that these were not the elite. They had no power. They were just ordinary men and women who had no real status in society. And certainly that was a problem, except that this movement began as a grassroots movement and so spread across the entire Roman Empire within three or four hundred years because it spread like wildfire among the ordinary people. So I say, well, that doesn't seem to have been a problem either. Or you might point to the fact that they are so few in numbers, and certainly there's a fragility when the church starts, but again, the Holy Spirit's work in them consistently shows he's bigger than their smallness. And before long, this whole thing grows exponentially. So I think the one answer we could give that seems to me to be the real problem that they face, the one that really seems to wall in the life of the church, is the problem of ethnocentrism. The fact that these, this small Jewish movement very quickly begins, is locked into its Jewishness and unable to see beyond themselves to the global dynamics of the gospel, how God puts out the invitation to every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. Ethnocentrism, or what we today might describe as a kind of racism, of course not based on skin color then, based on other dynamics, but similar in its mentality and xenophobia and so on. And in order for the gospel then to break through the walls, the Spirit of God had to bring about 
a renewal of hearts in the, in the early church to demonstrate to them that his intention was always, from the very beginning, in the book of Genesis, when God spoke to Abraham, his intention always was that the people of God would be a blessing to every nation on earth and would be made up of every nation on earth. He said, what does all this have to do with the book of Ruth? And I'll tell you what it is. The book is named after a Moabite woman. Possibly the most despised people group at the time among Hebrews. And God in his wisdom and his sovereign choice decides to weave into the story and the lineage of our Savior, Jesus, that one of his great-great-great-grandmothers would be this woman, Ruth. And it becomes such a badge of honor that when you open the beginning of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, and it starts with these are the generations of and tells you the lineage and the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, the author takes special care to mention the inclusion of this Moabite hero, Ruth. John Piper put it like this. He said, what God was doing in his far-seeing providence, which means his sovereignty over all history, what God was doing in his far-seeing providence was planting the dynamite that would explode the fortress of ethnocentrism and racism. God was laying down the dynamite that would explode the structures that would, withhold, that would prevent the gospel from spreading to the nations. And I again feel that overwhelming sense of gratitude at the wisdom and the plan of God. Would these women have chosen to walk through this particular path? I don't think so, no. But would they choose to do it again if they knew all that we now know? How God would bring life from this line in the birth of Jesus and the, the breaking down of the wall between Jew and Gentile so that the gospel could reach the nations. Would they choose it for that, for the greater good that God would accomplish? In a heartbeat, yes. I'm certain they would. But friend, you can bring this right back down to your own life and understand this. You may not, like the person walking through the hedged maze, you may not see what God is doing in your present situation and the frustration, delay, setback, heartache, or tragedy that you are facing. But I promise you this, that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, God is working all things together for good. He will bring life out of death. He will bring an, ex an experience of his love to you and, and grow you through this in a profound way. May the Lord fix this in your mind and your heart and so change you that you can face the trials of this life with fresh faith and vigor.